Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. The internet is accessible to at least 50 to 60% of the planet, right? So it's like, there's so much technology available and it's so easily available that we can't shield kids from these things. So the best thing to do is say, okay, let's all use it together and let's figure out what the best way to use it is and to actually become experts in using it, but then also go beyond it so that we can bring our human intellect into the, the equation. Three, two, one. My name is Esprit Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hi, this is Joe Peterson. I'm the Vice President of Cloud and Security with Clarify 360. I've been listening to the Women in Tech podcast for about a year, and I was drawn in by the energy and enthusiasm of the Women in Tech podcast. Esprit does a really great job in sharing stories of women in tech so that young female listeners can put themselves in the shoes of these women speaking. See, I strongly believe that if we don't show young women the way forward in tech by sharing our stories, then they won't know what's possible. The stories are what creates the value and inspiration. Great job, guys. LinkedIn presents... Welcome back to the Women in Tech podcast, celebrating incredible women in tech from all around the world. My name is Catherine Rowan, and I have the incredible privilege of guest hosting this episode. And with me today is the beautiful Vriti from New York City. Welcome, Vriti. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for making the time. Look, I'm not going to steal your thunder. So what I'll do is I'll ask you to tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what you're up to these days. Sure. I am uh, first and foremost an educator. I started off my career as a Teach for America teacher, and uh, since then I drank all of the education Kool-Aid and have been deeply embedded in the work for about 15 years. And uh, most recently, I started a DAO, or a Decentralized Autonomous Organization, um, which is much like a co-op on blockchain. And I can explain a little bit more of that later if you'd like, um, for educators by educators. So it's a global community of educators where we're trying to innovate in education at scale. And I'm also a consultant where I help other educators and companies build metaverse spaces for learning. There were lots of very <laughs> sort of key terms in there, like DAO, Cryptic blockchain. terms that no yes. one understands. <laughs> um, I guess... You know, what, what actually got you into teaching? The truth is that I did not know what to do with my life out of college. I um, was a pretty bad student, um, not in getting grades, but in learning. And I didn't know how to learn. I didn't know how to value learning. And when I was graduating college, I didn't have a mission or a goal or a passion. I didn't know where I was headed. And someone I was dating was doing Teach for America, and he 
got kicked out of the program and it made me want to join <laughs> to see <laughs> why he had got gotten kicked out. Kicked out. <laughs> yeah, kind of, because he was super smart. And I was like, I don't understand why he got kicked out. Um, and I, uh, I miraculously got into the program and I learned that he was a really bad teacher, which is why he got kicked out. But um, also that I uh, had found this, this, new passion that I had never known existed in me and also didn't know that this massive problem in the world and in the United States existed in uh, which which is the uh, education gap. And so uh, that's really how I got into education. It was a mistake. And um, once I got into it, I uh, was so grateful for my experience and so happy that life led me to that path. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting because in the set, in that example that you gave, you kind of played into a narrative and then also at the same time sort of smashed that misconception because I don't know what it is like over in the States, but in Australia, there's a, the narrative is sometimes, oh, if I don't get into anything, I just, I can just always teach, right? And it's the, it's the fallback to someone who either didn't get into what they wanted or has no idea what they want to do, but just feels like they need a job but then in the same breath you're like well actually teach for america people sometimes do let go uh, let go because they're not great quote-unquote teachers so it's like it's not exactly a fallback and there's actually an art to being a teacher you know so it's really interesting yeah that's a really interesting perspective because in i've never thought of teaching as a fallback i've always I've never thought about teaching. I mean, before I joined Teach for America, I never thought about teaching, period. I thought my fallback would be accounting or something like really boring profession. Sorry to the accountants out there. Um, But um, the teaching, Teach for America is a a fairly prestigious program that's not super easy to get into. And I have no idea how I got into it, to be honest. Um, And the fact that I did really changed the trajectory of my life. And I think it was a combination of the fact that teaching is actually really, really difficult, so much more difficult than most people think it is, um, and really challenging. And then on top of that, Teach for America as a program was really challenging. Yeah, it's it's funny that, you know, you mentioned the idea of like teaching being a fallback when in this scenario, teaching turned out to be the hardest and most gratifying thing mm-hmm. I've ever done. I mean, you're life. obviously so super humble. Like, it'll be obvious as we have this conversation to everyone, probably but you, why you got into teaching. And we're grateful as a community that you did come and join us. But, yeah, it's it's interesting the n- different narratives I see around the world around teaching. You know, like in terms of my background, teaching was just put on such a pedestal and therefore, you know, my parents and my family like, you have to study really well. You know, education was put on such a pedestal that I guess where I am, it's in terms of like social standing and, and just what people think about teaching and education. It's just not there yet. And so, yeah, it's really interesting listening to how people talk about teaching and value teaching all around the world and and how that impacts what happens in schools, you know, and the narrative that surrounds education. Re- really interesting also that it was something that you accidentally fell into, but then ended up loving so much. So that's, yeah, that, that's super yeah. cool. It's an interesting point you make, right? Because most of society will tell you that your education is the path to all of your dreams and your successes, right? People will tell you whether you're rich, whether you're poor, what country you're in, what demographic you come from, that education is the path to success and the key to success. And yet our teachers are not valued in the same way. So if we value education so highly, then how is it possible for our education to turn out the outcomes that we hope for if our teachers are not valued in that same way? 
interesting paradox that we have here. Super, isn't it? And I wanted to ask you this question, and it's obviously, you know, um, and especially I think a lot of the conversations around education has surfaced off the back of COVID and everything that's been going on in online learning and, and a, a bit of a shift in the way we see learning, you know, parents having to be at home and being the teachers um, of, of their children, which I, I can't even imagine how difficult that would have been to balance both things. But so I guess I feel like luckily most listeners to this podcast will have experienced education in some shape or form, you know, to have at, at least potentially, you know, at the primary, the to high school and potentially, you know, college if you're in America education. And, and it's not, I guess, a given, and that's why I want to say that. I want to preface the fact that it's not something that's given to everyone. And so a lot of people have their perceptions of what education is, and I'm hearing a lot of like, oh, the system is broken, you know, education sucks, you know, da 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 da, da. What do you think is a misconception or something that mainstream people who aren't in education as much as you are don't understand that could help them kind of get a better understanding of what education is apart from, oh, school sucks, it's not working, it's for factory workers, you know? Like what what is it that we're missing in our narrative that makes us kind of just go there and just think the education is broken and it's not working? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I would think about it in two ways. One is that there are systems in education that are not working well today. And the reason that they've emerged is because education sought to be standardized. And the standardization didn't come from a bad place. It came from wanting to provide a certain level and quality of education to every child in a nation. And so if you're trying to create something at scale, standardization is often necessary to do that. And so that piece is important to understand, which is like why the system feels broken today and why it feels like it's not individualized. It's because it's coming from a place where scale was important. Um, And then that scale has actually served many students uh, in the United States across the world in, in ways that parents and families that don't have access to certain resources have been able to access, right? So for example, there are certain families where, uh, you know, food scarcity is an issue. And so schools are providing food and shelter for students. Um, There are certain families where uh, literacy is an issue and uh, they're not speaking, you know, the language of the nation. And so when they go to school, they're able to get exposed to that. Um, So there are certain benefits to this sort of like larger standardization, and there are certain reasons why the school system today is still serving students in a way that is still important and is is really important to especially uh, lower uh, economic areas and underserved areas. But on the flip side, I think the thing that we don't see as often is that there are a lot of school models out there that are doing incredibly innovative things and teachers that are doing incredibly personalized things. And there are more examples of that than we think, but the reason why they're not proliferating is because the education industry, unlike other industries, is much more fractured. So other industries, for example, if you think about medicine, if there is a really great suturing, you know, practice that one doctor comes up with, that practice will proliferate like wildfire because it will decrease the cost of, uh, you know, the hospital or the cost to the insurance or whatever, because it'll be a more successful procedure. 
But with education, uh, because things are so individualized and because um, things are so uh, specific to a country and because there aren't, you know, that many standardized practices across countries, when there's a really great practice that emerges in education, it stays in that classroom. It does not proliferate. And so that's one of the things that I think we're missing in the education system is that there are really great practices out there. And there are really great examples of excellent personalized education out there, but they're not being spread as fast as other industries. And, and part of that is the lack of technology and the lack of uh, community that is created within the education community. So, so I think that might be a little bit helpful for people that are sort of focusing only on the broken systems. Um, but I, I would say that the folks that are focusing on the broken systems are not entirely wrong. And 100% it's kind of like actually really understanding the purpose of what was created and acknowledging the fact that it worked for what it was built for. And then now we're looking at a different lens with a different context to when it was established and saying that it's broken, you know. So I think that's a really sometimes unfair judgment on education then everyone goes down that rabbit hole of like, I wish I think I did, you know, differently. It's really interesting because I was talking to my neighbour and when he was uh, when he realized I, I taught or am still in education, he's like, you know, education failed me. You know, I wish as a teacher, you should have done this, 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 this. And in my head, I was like, you know, we tried so hard <laughs> to do that for you. It just, you know, it didn't manifest that way. But, you know, it's always sort of internalizing it with a grain of salt because everyone's going to have their opinion. I don't I don't know about you, but as soon as you say you're in education or you're a teacher, it's like it comes and you're like. Yeah, well, another sort of issue here is that I think we expect educators to do everything and be everything for a child. And there's just no possible way for one educator to also be the therapist, to also be the caretaker, to also be the teacher, to also be the guidance counselor, to also be the advisor, to also be the administrator and the secretary of everything, right? And so so I think we're just putting so much pressure and so many responsibilities on an individual educator that there's just no possible way that they're ever going to be able to meet all of those expectations. A hundred percent. And I think that has really come forward off the back of COVID. You know, when parents are at home and going, oh, actually, I've never had to deal with this before. Oh, it must have been school. It must have been teachers. So I think, you know, that's slightly shifting a narrative, but, you know, that, that narrative has still been there because it's just been ingrained for so long. I just want to ask you something interesting that you said before about when you're in school, you'll say like you're a bad student, not because of the grades per se, but because of learning. Can you kind of distinguish for us the difference between sort of having being a quote unquote bad student just because of bad grades and then being a quote unquote bad student just because you didn't know how to learn? Is there like a difference between the two? Yeah. So a a friend of mine who uh, leads Minerva, Ben Nelson, he often says that um, the education system is not a learning ecosystem. It's a credentialing ecosystem. And that really resonates with me because I think um, oftentimes within the education industry, we're often striving for transcripts and grades and credentials. We're often looking for shortcuts to to get the test right or to take the you know assessment well and then you know be able to go on to the next level and so on and so forth. And even when you're applying to college or for careers, are often looking for the credits that you have and the grades that you have. And I think that mindset, again, coming from standardization and scale, has put us into uh, this habit of always focusing on what grade do I get and not necessarily what have I learned from this. 
And so when I was in school, I found it fairly easy to get the grade because I found tests to be easy, but I learned very little. I, I can very confidently say that if I walked away from a test, I would not be able to uh, to use that knowledge and um, translate it to another situation or even to regurgitate it to you a week later because I only learned it for the test. And I think that's what a lot of kids do. And I think that's how a lot of our education industry operates because oftentimes they have to. So if you think about um, newer school models that have emerged uh, in the last 20 years, 30 years, so let's take charter schools, for example, Charter schools emerged from this need of wanting to bring better educational practices and models that were uh, associated with more business-like strategies um, to uh, manage schools in lower-income communities so that there could be competition for public schools and um, schools could be managed better, right? And charter schools, I think, started off with the best of intentions where they said, well, we want to get kids to college, we want to get kids out of poverty, we want to get, um, get kids more opportunity. But what ended up happening and what's still happening is charter schools are relegated to uh, the scores that they get on their state tests and the outcomes that they present on their assessments. And if they don't achieve those outcomes, then they get shut down and they don't get the funding that they need. And so even though charter schools, a lot of charter schools are trying to think differently about schooling and think differently about um, education and knowledge acquisition, they often have to uh, sort of go back to these sort of practices of test memorization and things like that in order to sustain their funding. So, so this system that we've created is very much about credentialing. And I think that's just the environment that I grew up in. I think what's changing today and what the future I think looks like is taking away those constructs and taking away those, uh, those assessment criteria that get you into the next level. So for example, you know, Google came out in, I think, 2015 with a set of credentials that allowed you to skip college and take their credential instead. And so that gave you the skill set that they, that they needed to get a job there, right? Or um, the fact that Ivy Leagues today are accepting portfolios instead of SAT scores so that they can see your holistic um, career or uh, academic trajectory instead of just focusing on that SAT score. I think, and, and then micro schools, I think, are popping up quite a bit. Um, I think last year there were 6 million children in the United States that chose a micro school or a home school over a public school last year. Um, and that's sort of creating much more personalized uh, ways of learning that are not focusing on tests. So there's a lot of progress being made there, but we definitely start off from a credentialing mentality instead of a uh, learning mentality. I've always wondered how easy is it then or hard? Like, what are the, what have we introduced by, for example, you're saying the Ivy Leagues are accepting students from portfolios. You've got Google, you've got a lot of actually tech companies who are, who are outwardly saying, I don't need, I don't need your credentials from uni. You know, I don't need a score from a course that you did that, as you said, made you gamify the situation where you're just trying to get the best number, <laughs> numerical number, as opposed to a demonstration of pure learning. How then do we think about no, just say, for example, acceptance into college. It's kind of like now that we don't have that system for, and I know that credentialing was, you know, was a way that we did that where it's like, okay, we can compare 
potentially two kids just based on you know some some sort of variables where we think demonstrates the human whereas now the portfolio is so vast and it's like oh you know i've got someone who's really creative on this side but someone who's you know for example really mathematical and really programmatic on the other side like how then do you as a person who accepts someone look at both of those and go oh like how do i how do i now look like what lens do I look now to be able to think about accepting someone for a job, someone for an Ivy League school? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be a lot harder and it's going to be a lot more, uh, it's going to require a lot more um, sort of getting involved with the actual portfolio and understanding deeper what the you know profile of the student is. But um, I would say that there's a few sort of shifts in the way that I think workforce is looking at portfolios or credentials now. I think folks are looking more at vocational strengths. So they're looking at what skill sets and competencies do you have that can actually translate directly to the job. So for example, if, um, can you code, right? Like, I don't care what score you got in your coding class, but can you code? So what um, workforce, uh, you know, industries, employers are doing today is instead of looking at the resume point blank, they're saying, hey, can you complete this task? And if you're able to complete this basic task, then you move on to the next um, stage where you complete a more complex task. And so um, those tasks can, you know, uh, can be anywhere from project management to, you know, social emotional learning skills to working on a team to coding to creating a project perspective for perspectives for how you would manage a company or whatever. You know, there's like a lot of different ways that you can manifest that. But these sort of, you know, portfolio based assessments, you can call them is really how people are um, starting to assess it. And I think the baseline is, can you pass this sort of like f- foundational uh, assessment, this foundational task, and then can you do something more complex? And I think that the the more advanced that AI gets, I think AI is actually gonna start um, reviewing that data. So for example, ChatGPT, um, that uh, th- there was a, folks are actually using, like employers today, are actually using it to assess whether a coder can actually, um, you know, write really clean code and ChatGPT is actually assessing that code instead of a human having to assess it. So um, I think the more advanced that those tools get, the easier it's going to get to wade through that content because it is going to be a lot more onerous for uh, for employers to actually look through portfolios and look through these like performance tasks rather than just a score. Chat GPT has been so interesting. You know, playing around with it in different scenarios has been really fun for me and then seeing what applications it could have in education. How do you think it might shift the narrative? I mean, if, if people haven't played with Chat GPT before, um, please go and just play. It's free. Um, you can do a lot of different things. But so I guess just to preface that, um, it's just, a, I guess, an AI tool that can do a lot of thinking as well not just sort of regurgitation let's say we you know we start to see see chat gpt used in education a lot more how do you think that will shift the learning that happens say inside a classroom like traditional learning inside a classroom yeah well one cautionary tale here is um sam altman who's one of the founders of of the program he actually has been tweeting quite a bit over the last few days and he is explicitly saying that it actually isn't doing a lot of thinking it is doing regurgitating. So one thing to know about um, these AI tools that are out there is that they aggregate information and then they're able to sort of like spit out the information that's found all over the internet, but they're not actually doing any real-time assessment or any sort of new uh, creation of content. 
they're simply looking at the millions of resources that are available and sort of regurgitating them to you. So they might feel like they're new, but they're actually just regurgitations of what's out there. So that's one thing that he's sort of cautioning people on, which is like, don't replace this, um, you know, just yet, because there's a lot more learning that the AI tool needs to do in order to actually be effective and in order to actually be intelligent. It's not intelligent just yet. But in terms of like how that might change instruction and how that might change the classroom, I think even today, you can look at it from the teacher's perspective and then from the student's perspective. So from the teacher's perspective, um, we can use these AI tools to actually create lesson plans that, you know, and ideas for uh, what we might want to implement in the classroom and um, how we might want to assess student work, how we might want to, again, go through that sort of foundational level of assessment before we dig even deeper and provide one-on-one -on -one feedback. So that sort of like threshold where you know that you have generally three groups of students in your class. You've got the students who are performing on average, the students who are performing a little bit higher than average, and students who are performing a little below average. And so the students that are performing a little bit below average and on average, you can sort of like feed their initial tasks through these AI uh, systems and sort of get a initial assessment of it so that you can, you know, have a little bit of time to actually focus on uh, student feedback that is more generative, that is more personalized once they get back uh, past that threshold. And then for students, you know, students are starting to use these AI tools to generate essays and to generate projects and to generate resumes and to generate you know, all these things. And, and the thing is, it's like we're, we're going to get to a point where uh, they're going to start relying on these tools to generate their entire homework assignment. And so what teachers will need to figure out is, one, how do we teach kids just ethics and morality around this so that they know when it's the right time to use it and when it's the wrong time to use it? But then beyond that, how do we create assessments, assignments? How do we create you know, substantive learning that isn't able to be solved by AI? And if it is being able to be solved by AI, then how can students actually uh, go one step deeper. So for example, if like the teacher says, use an AI tool to generate an essay, let's say the student does that, generates the essay, then the teacher said, now use that essay to actually change it um, to make it your perspective or something like that. And that way, like it can become a learning tool because I think one of the, the like missteps that we often make is we think that we can shield our kids from a new technology or a new social media tool or whatever, and we can prevent them from using it. And that's just never going to happen, right? Technology is so readily available. 95% of teens have access to a smart device. The internet is accessible to at least 50 to 60% of the planet, right? So it's like there's so much technology available and it's so easily available that we can't shield kids from these things. So the best thing to do is say, okay, Let's all use it together and let's figure out what the best way to use it is and to actually become experts in using it, but then also go beyond it so that we can bring our human intellect into the, the equation. Yeah, a really interesting point that you made was, was the example of your assessments and then coupled with what you were saying around 
the AI isn't thinking per se, it's aggregating all of the information that we have that's currently available on the internet and then putting it together and synthesis. So I, I guess they're not synthesizing, sorry, wrong word, but they're, I guess the output is something that's digestible for a student. Like I, I was, you know, looking at some of the outputs, I was like, wow, this is much more digestible for a student than if I was to give them a textbook, even though I'm in that industry. <laughs> so that says something about us. But the, I think the point there is the assessments that we make, if it can be answered by an AI that's not actually thinking, then we have to reassess the assessment because then where's the learning, right? So to me, the AI, the fact that we have the chat GPT takes care of that level one quote unquote learning that we think we do and then goes, okay, cool. Well, that's just like the basic, like the definitional, you know, the remember type level. Now that gives us the opportunity to advance forward. So to me, it kind of is like, I mean, I think of it as a teacher, I was like, damn, if I, if my assessment can be answered by a chat GPT, I'm not, I'm not doing something right because it's just too quote unquote basic. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I totally do. I think, I think there is some truth to that. I think that uh, I, I agree with you for the most part, but the thing that I think we also need to think about is that students do need to learn those fundamental skills. And oftentimes those fundamental skills are, you know, a little bit repetitive and easy to sort of translate, especially when you go to the younger years. And so um, I, I agree with you that like the assessments need to get deeper over time, especially throughout the course of a year or throughout the course of a, a learning unit. But I think if they start that way, I think it's actually a really uh, it's a huge opportunity for teachers and students to take advantage of these tools to to build that foundation faster, essentially. Yeah, for sure. One hundred percent. I'm so excited about this conversation. because I'm like, I'm so, so nerding out about Edu. It's so crazy. And at the very start of the conversation, you dropped a few <laughs> bombs words. A lot of us might be like, what did you just say? Like, I've just read about these acronyms but I just don't know what it is so my challenge to you is I guess the first question is what made you kind of shift and get into this realm and then my second challenge my actual challenge to you is can you explain it in a way that uses no jargon yeah I I will try my best uh so how did I get into this I I've been into something called bitcoin which is a digital currency for about 10 years I, I I'm not the OG my best friend who got me into it is the OG and I, I didn't quite understand the utility of it beyond investment um, until 2020. And 2020, because we all were spending more time online and we all had more free time than we realized, um, we, I, I had this opportunity to dive deeper into what blockchain actually means. Um, and what blockchain, blockchain is basically the technology behind how cryptocurrency works or how Bitcoin works. And uh, so... I, I learned a little bit more blo about blockchain and, you know, when we get to the challenge, I'll try to break that down for you too. And uh, what I learned is that uh, there's this, you know, new technology out there that basically allows us to create distributed areas or distributed ways of storing data and verifying data. And what that meant was that there's all of these people around the world that have self-organized and are creating these systems where they're actually transaction transacting with each other. So like if we think about that fundamentally, people self-organizing to transact with each other in this distributed way, like that to me just blew my mind because I was just like, okay, so everything that I've ever engaged in in the last like 30 years is really 
all centralized, right? Everything that I remember has been all centralized. Maybe, you know, the community that I grew up in when, you know, we immigrated to the United States, people would give like furniture to each other. That was kind of decentralized enough organized, which is kind of nice. But beyond that, like most things are centralized. And so um, it just kind of blew my mind. And I started thinking about, well, what are other things that we can decentralize? What are other things that we can self-organize on? And I started thinking about the use cases specifically in education. And I started thinking, well, we know that, you know, really great instruction in the classroom focuses on the student and it doesn't focus on the teacher. If we focus on the teacher, it's a centralized system. But what if we did focus on the student more? Could we make it a decentralized system? And so that basically that like one thought catapulted this sort of like entire sort of like research area for me. And um, it also got me really into avatar based platforms. So just virtual platforms that allow you to move around as um, little characters, video game characters. I, uh, in 2020, started attending these conferences that were all on Zoom and on these video chat platforms. And, and what I couldn't understand was, you know, we had these avatar based platforms available to us. Why aren't we using them for conferencing, especially during a time when we can't meet together? So in uh, the beginning of 2021, um, I tried to basically culminate all of the things that I learned in 2020 into a gathering. And the gathering, uh, I called it an unconference. And basically the purpose of it was to bring educators together, talk about what was innovative in education, talk about decentralizing education, talk about self-organization, but do it as avatars who are also decentralized. <laughs> so basically we had this, like we set up this space, um, it was a city, we called it the city of learning. And we had these little avatars um, that could move around freely, have conversations with each other where they wanted to, but also attend workshops or a talk or go play in the playground or go uh, see a vendor booth or go have a chat with um, somebody at the cafe or the bar or go have a reflection period where they're just by themselves and want to reflect on what's happening. So there were just a lot of things that you could do like in a real life city. And so that that sort of decentralized, you know, unconference model really brought to light for me. And it was an experiment that I did in January. Um, and, and it really brought to light for me how how possible it is for us to actually create these self-organized models of education. And, you know, the, some of my favorite sort of anecdotes that came out of that conference was, you know, there was a group of people that were hiding in like the forest area. And there were just like trees, right? There, there were just trees and there were like 12 people under the trees. And I walked over to them and I was just like, hey, are you guys lost? Do you need anything? And they said, oh my God, you found us. And I was just like, oh, is everything okay? And they said, well, you know, we met, we're, we're just 12 educators from different parts of the world. We met two hours ago and we started talking and then we pulled up a whiteboard and we started figuring out how we can change education. We haven't been to any of the talks, we haven't been to any of the events. Is it okay if we just stay here? And I was just like, yes, absolutely. This is like literally <laughs> why awesome. I did this. This is literally, like some people were going to the conference. It's great. But like if you wanted to hang out here under the trees and, and get a whiteboard out and start ideating about education, this is literally exactly what I wanted. And so, so that basically catapulted everything that, you know, I've gotten into, which is, you know, Web3 and DAOs and NFTs and blockchain and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so I'm going to take your time now. <laughs> I was like, oh no, she added more acronyms. <laughs> okay. Oh, so did. Okay. So, so um, let's start with, what do you want to start with? 
uh, what makes sense to start with? Should we go Web3 first? Does that make sense first? Yeah, let's start with Web3. That's that's a good uh, sort of overview. So Web3 is the evolution of the World Wide Web. So let's start with what the internet is, then let's go into what the World Wide Web is and why it's the evolution really quickly. I'll do it in as few seconds as possible. So the internet, <laughs> the internet is uh, how mobile devices were connected, right? So when we think about um, just during the Soviet era, uh, the United States needed a way to decentralize how their missile systems were um, operating because they feared that if um, their missile systems were attacked, which were controlled by one computer, they uh, would be disabled. So they basically created a network of computers all over the world, uh, sorry, all over the United States, and their missile systems were connected to all of those computers so that if one computer was attacked, the missile system would still be intact. And so the internet, that was sort of like the, the, the emergence of the sort of popular and commercialized internet, which is it connected different devices to each other. Then um, in 1989, Tim Berners-Lee, he started uh, something called the World Wide Web, which basically allowed us to search across the internet. It was basically a way for us to look for information across the internet. Web 1 was the version where we could only look at the information and consume it and read it because there weren't a lot of coders on the planet. There wasn't a lot of ways to actually contribute to the uh, to the web. So we could just consume information. We could look at websites. We could scroll through things. Web 2 then was uh, basically an evolution of Web 1 when social media came out. So when we think about the MySpaces, the Facebooks, the live journals, the blog posts, the websites, that, that was the era when we could actually contribute without being a coder and we could um, connect with people from all over the world and have conversations with them and, and really uh, put things on the internet and create profiles of ourselves without being coders. So that was Web 2. Web 3 is the further evolution of that today where you can do all of those things, but now you can own your own data. And the way that you own your own data is that in Web 2, these big conglomerates, um, these big monopolies like Google and Amazon and Facebook, they owned our data because they offered a service to us for free. And the cost for that was our data. Today, with blockchain, which is a distributed way of organizing and storing data, it allows you to put your data into many different servers at the same time, meaning that no central entity owns it. And so there are all of these apps being developed right now that are Web3 apps that are versions of Web2 apps. So there is a Web3 version of the uh, of the worldwide uh, of the uh, sorry of browsers. There's uh, Web3 versions of social media apps. There's Web3 versions of Google Docs, of Web3 version of you know every app that you can possibly think of, of Zoom. There's like Web3 versions of everything. And the goal of that is to basically decentralize data storage so that your data is not stored with a centralized server, but it's across many different nodes. So that's basically Web3. So beautiful. So now we've got this, this we've set the scene for Web3. What made you go into the DAO? Yes. So, so the DAO, so a DAO is a, uh, it stands for a decentralized autonomous organization. Um, and what that basically means is uh, it's basically a, a democratic organization where the people that are part of that organization have the power to make decisions and everything is transparent. 
because everything lives on blockchain. So the decisions, the voting rights, the fund disbursements, everything lives on blockchain. And because blockchain is distributed, you can actually um, see what's happening across the distributed blocks. And you can actually see what decisions have been made, what funds have been dispersed, um, how the voting procedure works, who's you know part of the DAO, all that kind of stuff. And so the thing that got me into DAOs is, um, you know, in last year when I was building my company, I was building a company called K20, and I was building a network of teachers that could connect with each other, learn from each other, and innovate with each other um, through a sort of decentralized network. And um, when I learned about DAOs, I learned that DAOs are basically a way to do that. But it, the difference between a DAO and what I was building is that a DAO gives complete power and ownership to the people that are part of that DAO versus what I was building, it was a for-profit company that would give ownership and power to me. And so as soon as I learned about DAOs, I realized that the DAO is actually what I'm trying to build, not a for-profit company. And so I basically turned, uh, put all of my you know, IP and all the things that I'd built over the course of about eight months into a nonprofit DAO structure so that our community could be the owners of their own data. Our community could be the owner of the decisions that were made uh, for the fund disbursements and for the grants that we had and for the decisions that we made. And that's really what um, you know got us started with Ed3DAO. Mm-hmm. And so what is the vision and purpose for the Ed3DAO? Our mission is to catalyze innovation in education at scale. And basically what that means is we want to equip educators with the right mindsets, principles, tools, funding to be able to identify the biggest problems in education and and, and, uh, solve them using emerging technology. So for example, if a teacher is really sick of the bureaucracy in their school, What we want them to say is, I want to create a different model for how schools function. And so maybe they'll create a DAO school. And that DAO school or micro school might become a example of how a micro school or a school can operate using a democratic process that is completely transparent and everyone in the community can see what's going on with it. And so that's really the purpose of the DAO, which is we want to educate people about Web3. We want to equip them with the tools and the resources and the um, mindsets required to leverage that technology and then to identify those problems in education and then solve them using Web3 tech. And can you only join Ed3DAO if you're an educator or? Anyone can join. Uh, The purpose of the DAO is to catalyze innovation in education, which means that, um, you know, we want to equip educators because we know that educators are closest to the problems. But we know that there are so many other people out there that have had really crappy educational experiences that want to do something about it. And so we want to equip those people, too. I, I would say that our main audience today is educators because we really want to infiltrate the education industry and we want to make sure that the education industry is building from ground up. We, one of the problems I think we've experienced um, in education, especially in ed tech, is that there are 
people coming from outside of the education industry thinking they know how to solve problems in education and then building technologies and, and solutions that don't actually solve any of the problems, right? They just, you know, continue those problems or, you know, paint them in a different color. And so we really want to avoid that. And so we, we are trying to target educators who are on the ground, who are experiencing the problems firsthand, but maybe don't have access to the tooling and the mindsets to be able to do something about it. So if I was someone from a different industry who wanted to get involved and kind of, as you said, you know, thinking back to the trauma potentially of not just the experience of school and wanted to contribute, can I do that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a few different programs right now. So we're, we're building over three phases. The first phase is education. And um, in the education phase, we're offering a lot of free resources, uh, events, and we have a newsletter where we basically teach people about Web3 contextualized for education. And then we also have a slew of coursework. So we've got micro-credentials um, where we actually credential people on blockchain, DeFi, tokenomics, um, DAOs, NFTs, metaverse. I know I'm throwing out so many things out there. I'm, I'm making the challenge harder for myself. And um, all of these things that, that fall within the Web3 ecosystem, we want to actually train people on that. And then we also have an annual conference that we just had a few weeks ago. And then phase two is we're building an incubator. And that incubator is, uh, you know, meant to serve educators who are on the ground wanting to solve big problems in education. So folks that are not educators, um, if they want to use any of the resources that we have or come to any of our events, they're more than welcome to. If they want to join the incubator in the future, then they're going to have to present a really compelling case that the community will have to vote on. So the community will actually vote on, you know, who's part of the incubator and what problems we're, we're trying to solve and what kind of solutions are being solved for it, what kind of grants are being given, all that kind of stuff. And so I would say that, you know, the more uh, people that we have in this community, the better, but the community's essence and the community's sort of heart and core is really with the people that are on the ground. Mm -hmm. Makes perfect sense. You've done so many cool things and I in so many cool spaces, if there's one thing that you're like, one challenge that you face that really comes to mind, what was that throughout this whole journey that you've had and how did you overcome it? I'll, I'll tell you a challenge that I feel like I've overcome and a challenge that I feel like I haven't overcome. For the DAO, I started off as uh, a for-profit and I wanted to build a company that would be scalable and that would be reachable to you know, the millions of educators that are out there and really get the industry to change. And what I realized uh, probably later than I could have is that the thing that I'm trying to build is not a for-profit, it's actually a nonprofit. And the amount of impact and change you can make with a nonprofit is just as high level and, and deep as you can with a for-profit, but you have to find the right communities, resources, funding to be able to do that. And although it hasn't been easy, it's been a really fruitful journey so far because I think I was able to shift my perspective in what I was trying to build and understand what the full outcome was instead of what the short-term plan was. The short-term plan was the for-profit, the long-term plan was the impact. And what I realized was that the impact was a lot more doable as a nonprofit. So that was one challenge that I think that 
founders often struggle with because I think often founders will go into something with deep passion, but they won't know necessarily how to manifest it and how to bring it to light. And the number of you know, pushbacks and no's that I received um, about the for-profit really made me rethink, well, why am I receiving this pushback? Um, and why is you know, the industry, the VC industry or the for-profit industry not accepting this as something that's important? And the reality was that like that industry is looking more for the billion dollar company and not for the billion dollar impact, right? <laughs> that really shifted my perspective and that really helped me move it into the DAO ecosystem. And then the thing that I um, feel like I'm, I still struggle with on a, on a daily basis is, um, you know, we, we've had quite a few, you know, successes and, you know, a lot of sort of productivity and we've been able to accomplish a lot in the last year and a half that we've, you know, been on this project. Yet every day I feel like I haven't done enough. And every day I'm constantly like, well, I, I could, I, I should be doing more or I should be spending more time or I should be thinking more deeply about these problems. Anytime I meet, you know, a new innovator or educator who's doing amazing things, I'm completely awed by them. And I'm like, how do I support this person? How do I get this person to do more? And the truth is like, you can't be everywhere all the time and you can't solve all the, you know, world's education problems. And so, um, honing in on sort of what I'm doing and trying to solve the problem that I'm trying to solve is always a struggle for me because I'm constantly thinking about, well, how can I serve more people? How can I serve more students? How can I serve more problems? So that's sort of like an internal struggle that I have. And I've, you know, gotten a lot better at just sort of turning that voice off oftentimes um, and sort of keeping my focus on the things that really do matter that are going to move things forward. But it is a constant struggle for me. We could go on forever, but in the interest of time, <laughs> I guess to close out, I, I have a few quick fire questions for you. Anything off the top of your head? What's your favorite book? Uh, so I have a favorite book that's a children's book called The Missing Piece. Um, it's a book by Shel Silverstein, and uh, it's one of his not so well known books. And it's basically this like Pac-Man looking character looking for its missing piece. And in the end, um, after fitting many different pieces into its mouth, um, like square pieces and crushing them and blah, blah, it realizes that it doesn't need another piece to complete itself. And then it walks away from the perfect piece. <laughs> I actually have a tattoo of it. No <laughs> way, like seriously. So yeah. Oh my God, It, it, it truly is my favorite book. <laughs> oh, wowza. That's probably the best answer I've had so far. For this yeah, I, it's like I, I think about it often where it's just like, you know, people say when they find a partner or, or whatever, they say, like, you know, my partner completes me. And I it's my personal opinion of that is that that is shortchanging yourself and what you can do as an independent person. And your partner should, you know, be an enhancement to your life, but they shouldn't be the missing piece, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm, sure. Just be Pac-Man. <laughs> <laughs> be Pac-Man, be who you are, broken or not. <laughs> That's it. Uh, favorite podcast? I'm a big fan of Making Sense with Sam Harris. I think, yeah, Sam Harris. Um, and uh, it's he gets really uh, philosophical and vulnerable and deep into concepts that I think are always kind of on my mind, but I don't have enough time to reflect on myself. And so when I'm listening to him, there's a lot of like, there's a lot of pausing the podcast to reflect 
And so like one 45 minute or two hour podcast will turn into like an eight hour podcast for me because I'll like be thinking about it so much or talking to my partner about it so much and things like that. So that's a really great, great one. That's awesome. Your best resource for tech? My best resource for tech. Well, currently, I, I can't say this is my best resource, but it's currently one of my favorite resources. The former founder of MakerPad, uh, Ben, he created uh, a AI newsletter called uh, Ben's Bytes. And uh, it is just tremendous. It's just chock full of resources. And there are so many resources in there that it's actually hard to keep up with all the things that are coming out in AI. Amazing. If you have time, which it sounds like a lot of it's just thinking and then figuring out a way to serve more people. But do you have a hobby? Do I have a hobby? I have many hobbies that I have not tended to in many years. Um, <laughs> does that count? I, I love plants. I have many different plants. I have um, I have over 40 plants in my studio apartment. Um, and yep. And uh, I, I, I love plants. Um, I love propagating plants. I love, you know, just taking care of plants. Um, I also uh, at some point was uh, a painter, artist. Um, so I used to sketch and oil paint a lot. And yeah, it's been a while since I've done that. But I'd say those two are probably uh, the hobbies that I wish I could do more of. Last questions, I promise. What can our community do to support you? And then how can we connect with you? One thing is try to constantly ask questions about systems that don't work. Because the more that we can all ask questions and you know, have curiosities about things that, you know, don't seem to be working for us, the more that we're going to see change. Um, and if you're so inclined to ask questions about education, ask those questions in our Discord. <laughs> so um, that's that's one thing that you can do. And then um, the way to connect with me is uh, Twitter or LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time on uh, both those platforms or um can also uh, follow along our newsletter, uh, which is newsletter.k20educators.com. And uh, that is basically sort of a bi-weekly um, stream of consciousness thoughts and then also just lots of resources about Web3. Awesome. Well, God, what a conversation. Thank you so much for your wisdom and spending time with us today, Riti. It's just been Oh, I wish this could go on forever. And of course, to the listeners, thank you so much for hanging out with us today in the Women in Tech podcast to connect and collaborate with incredible women in tech from all around the world, just like Riti. Remember to go to womenintech.com. That's womenintech.com. And of course, say hello to us on our socials at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Until next time, stay safe, be rad. Bye. Hi, this is Breedy Saraf. I am the founder and CEO of K20 Educators and co-founder of EveryDAO. K20 Educators is a consulting firm that builds metaverse spaces for learning. And EveryDAO is a DAO, decentralized autonomous organization for educators, helping educators innovate in education. I'm based in New York City, and you're listening to Women in Tech. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. 
Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.